Welcome to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast, helping people who want to improve their health and change their mindset around food so they can live the life they were designed and called for. I am your host, Adrian Delgado, and in this podcast, I'll give you step-by-step action plans to reach your health goals, as well as my favorite recipes I know you and your family will enjoy. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Nourish, Eat, Repeat. Today's topic is, but what does the science say? Now, you've heard me say this multiple times in the past, if you've been a longtime listener, that nutrition is a science. And so we look to research to help guide our recommendations. And today, I actually want to go through six different dieting pieces of advice that you may have heard over the years or points of contention or confusion like is this really better than the other way because I heard my neighbor's sister said I should do it this way or I read an article once that said you need to do it that way and so I tried to pick six of the more common things that I hear in my office and really go to the research Like specifically, what do randomized trials tell us in terms of efficiency, uh, long-term effectiveness? And I'm actually using a book called Everything Fat Loss by Ben Carpenter as a reference point for this conversation. So uh, Ben Carpenter is a guy I like to follow on social media. He is a personal trainer, uh, but everything that he... All the advice that he gives uh, is strictly from science only. He has lots and lots of references for the research that he's pointing to. And so I'm using his book. I actually went out and bought the book. It's called Everything Fat Loss. And it just breaks down all the different components of weight loss, specifically fat loss, and what works and what doesn't. Or at least, what does the research say? So I kind of cherry-picked a couple ideas that I wanted to talk about today, but there is a lot more references and research in his book if you want to do more of a deep dive. Now, I think it's really important to note, too, that the book Everything Fat Loss, it's not about how to just lose weight. It's specific to those people that want to lose body fat. I always say losing weight is so much easier than losing fat. There is a difference between weight loss and fat loss because weight loss can encompass all sorts of things like water and muscle and fat loss pertains strictly to fat. Most people that come into my office when they say I'm here for weight loss, they're not specifically there for weight loss. They're there for fat loss because they want to preserve their lean tissue. They don't want to become dehydrated in the process, but a lot of diets, especially commercial diets and fad diets, will promise weight loss, meaning at whatever cost. If we have to lose some water, if we have to lose some lean tissue, at least you're a smaller number on the scale. And that's kind of why we do body composition screenings at our office, why we really like to look at the composition of what people are losing, because ultimately that is going to um, set them up for more long-term success than to meet a goal very quickly and then rebound and regain the weight just a few months to a few years later. 
I actually um, was doing body composition screens this morning, and we had a gentleman that came in and just did phenomenal, like lost all body fat and preserved his muscle because of the activity that he was engaging in, uh, the different types of eating styles that he was following. And he's like, you know, I did make some changes, but it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And it was just mostly about being consistent. You know, once I, I've learned the tools and I learned the way uh, that worked well for my body, it was just doing the work over and over. Was it perfect? No. Um, but I find that I can still enjoy things. I don't have to give up all of my favorites things. And I was really successful. So um, it, it's just such, it's so much fun for me uh, to be able to be on this journey with so many people and to celebrate their wins and to figure out the challenges when they come along the way because they're coming. It's not uh, if, it's a when you get you hit a roadblock or you hit a hit a challenge. So um, yeah, it's just it's a lot of fun. So today we're specifically talking about fat loss. All right, what are some what are some things that you may have heard along the way? And is it true? And what does the science say? We're going to go through six um, different topics right now. And so the first one I want to start with, let's just jump right in. Do I need to follow low fat or low carb to lose fat? Okay. Again, I'm going to talk about fat loss. So if I say weight loss, I've, I'm specifically talking fat loss. Um, I'm sure at some point along the way, I'm going to interchange those words. I'll try really hard not to. But what is better for fat loss, low fat or low carb? All right. So here is what the research says. Low carbohydrate wins for weight loss, especially in the early stages. But when it comes to fat loss, it's a draw. Okay? So, which one do you need to follow to lose fat? Low carb or low fat? Well, when it comes to fat loss, it's a draw. So, let's explain what's going on here. So, when you eat low fat, okay? Because remember, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you grew up on Snackwell cookies and low fat and everybody had country crock on their dining room table. Nobody was allowed to eat butter because, or any, any type of fat because fat was bad. Fat is nine calories per gram. Proteins and carbs are four calories per gram, meaning for every gram of fat you eat, you take in nine calories. For every gram of carb and protein you eat, you bring in four calories. So it would make sense if you are trying to follow a low-fat diet that you would be reducing your total calories if you're not compensating with extra carbs and protein. If all you do is decrease the amount of fat in your diet and everything else stays the same, you would lose weight over time. You would because you're in a calorie deficit. Now... When it comes to low carbohydrate, we have to remember that when you eat a carbohydrate, you also bring in three grams, three to four grams of water to process that carbohydrate. So there is some fluid retention when you eat carbohydrates. 
All right. So when you reduce the number of carbohydrates, sometimes what you're seeing is a fluid shift, not fat loss, but a fluid shift. But hey, let's be honest, the scale is down, so we don't care. Now, the other thing that can happen is if you are not eating adequate carbohydrates and your body needs energy, it potentially will break down muscle to convert protein into carbs so that you can use it for energy. Okay, your muscle cell is about 70% water. So anytime you break down muscle to convert that protein into carb, a lot of times you're releasing a lot of water. But again, the scale goes down and we don't really care. We just want to see a smaller number. So we think victory. So a lot of times when you do the low carb diet thing, a lot of times what you're seeing a reduction in is fluid shifts. Uh, if you are not eating as many carbohydrates, you don't produce as much insulin. So that can result in less uh, storage of calories. Insulin is a storage hormone. And so it's really important to understand low carbohydrate wins if you're looking for weight loss, especially just in the early stages. Because remember, it's mostly fluid that you're losing. But for long-term fat loss, it really doesn't matter. And so this is actually really exciting news because you can pick whatever you prefer. If you prefer more of a low carb diet, great. If you prefer more of a low fat diet, great. As long as your protein is staying the same, you get to pick whatever feels right to you because eventually you're going to be creating a calorie deficit and that is what will help with weight loss. All right. Now, some things to consider when you're trying to figure out, do you want to go the low fat or the low carb route is what are your energy levels? You know, if you're exhausted all day long and you're kind of going through a fog and you can't seem to be motivated to do anything, we may need to change the diet so that it gives you more sufficient energy. What about your workout performance? Are you able to move your body when you go to the gym or when you work out the way you really want to? If you're aiming for more of a low-carb lifestyle, but you're not seeing any gains in the gym or you're not able to progress, we may need to shift things a little bit and give you more carbs so that you have adequate energy for the time you're spending there. Uh, what's your appetite regulation look like? Right. Sometimes if you're doing too low of fat, you're hungry and you need some of those healthy fats in your diet for longevity and fullness. All right. Another good piece of news is whatever you choose, if you tend to gravitate towards more low carb or more low fat, it doesn't have to be finite. It's not, uh, well, pick your lane and now you must stay in that lane forever and ever. You can change. You can let your preferences guide you. Maybe some days you're higher carb, someday you're higher fat. Again, as long as your protein's staying the same and you're in a caloric deficit, it doesn't matter. The research doesn't show one is superior to another. The last thing that you want to consider is your blood work. What does your blood work say? I have so many clients that did keto and then got themselves in some trouble with their cholesterol. It may feel good to you. You may like it, but if your blood work isn't consistent with your preferences, we may have to shift. Okay. Bottom line, don't make it a rule. It has to be this way. You have some flexibility here, so use it. 
I think this is just the most exciting news ever because it really comes down to what feels good to you and what is sustainable. All right. So research shows it's a draw. All right. Let's go to another one. Um, Time-restricted feeding helps with weight loss and fat loss. All right. So time-restricted feeding. We know time-restricted feeding more commonly as intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting can be done in a couple ways where you're either reducing the amount of calories you eat a few days a week to a few days a month, or you are eating within a specific window of time. So I think when I hear the word intermittent fasting, more people are using it, uh, what should be better defined as time-restricted feeding. Like they're only eating between noon and 8 p.m. Or they give themselves either a four or an eight-hour window to eat all the food for the day. But what does the science say? Does it really help with weight loss and fat loss? Or is it just... Is it not necessary? All right. So here's what the research says. Time-restricted feeding can help with weight loss in the short term. Why? Because of the calorie restriction. You're not eating as many calories throughout the day because you're not eating certain hours of the day. So you automatically just decrease your intake, which can help with weight loss. The research also shows that it can decrease fat loss without affecting lean muscle growth. So for a lot of my clients who are working at increasing their muscle or preserving what they have so um, they're not losing lean tissue, this could be helpful. All right. Now, the research shows that there is no advantage to managing hunger levels, energy levels, or your metabolic rate. So time-restricted feeding doesn't necessarily, um, the research doesn't support that it affects those components, but it can help decrease fat loss without affecting lean tissue growth. But here are your caveats, right? Here are the concerns. If time-restricted feeding makes you feel ravenous, and you end up overeating and binging because you are just so hungry because you haven't allowed yourself to eat, um, that's a concern, all right? Because time-restricted feeding can lead to disordered eating in the form of binge eating, right? So you don't eat within certain times, and now all of a sudden you can't take it anymore, and you just go off, and you consume Um, a lot of calories in a very short amount of time. I always define binging as a natural response to restriction. So if you struggle with this because you've made a rule, I can't eat after this time, and now all you do is think about food and how you can't have it and how you really want it to the point where you go off, I'm going to have to caution you and maybe try to steer you in a different direction. All right? Here's the thing with time-restricted feeding, what I also see. It doesn't have to be a hard rule, meaning I have to do it every single day or it's not going to work. Think about how you naturally eat. I know sometimes after dinner, I'm just not hungry. And then other days after dinner, I am. But if I make a rule for myself that I can't do it ever, I find that I want to be rebellious and I want to eat just because you told me I can't. You've taken my choice away. 
So I think if you, what I would recommend is just really listening to your body's signals. You know, if you are truly hungry, your stomach is growling, you feel an emptiness, a hollow feeling, you're nauseous, and it's outside your window, I don't know. I think I'm eating at that point because there is a need to be met and my body's hungry. But, you know, for a lot of us, we're eating at night not because we're hungry, but because we had a bad day or because I deserve it or because this one time won't matter, right? What are the patterns? Again, just like that guy I told you about earlier in the podcast, it's about consistency. But when you start making really hard rules for yourself and they're absolutes, usually that's where things start to become unraveled. All right. So if you want to try time-restricted feeding to see if that, if you like it, if it's sustainable, go for it. And if you don't, that's great too. You can't go wrong. That This is the beauty of looking at the research. It tells us, does it really make a difference or not? All right, number three. And this one's going to be a little tricky to describe because I am going to let you fill in the blank. All right. So number three, the paleo diet is the best. Or you could say the keto diet is the best. Or you could say the vegan diet is the best diet to follow. You insert whatever word, whatever diet you want into that sentence. And the research will tell you that it really comes down to what you consistently can follow. So interesting enough, research when it comes to these different diets um, are more focused on the health implications and not necessarily weight loss. Okay. Um, Even the Mediterranean diet, which, you know, we as dietitians will recommend if people ask us to pick a diet, like if you have to pick one, which one would it be? Um, The Mediterranean diet is one that we tend to focus on just because it focuses on such great healthy foods in and not completely abandoning all food groups. All right. And the Mediterranean diet does, uh, there's a lot of potential for it to reduce central obesity, but there aren't really any studies confirming that it's superior to others. Right. Most of the research out there is done on the health implications only. Let's, let's just be honest here for a second. Eating less processed foods is always a great stat strategy for regulating appetite. Let me say that a sentence again because I tripped over all of that. Eating less processed foods is always a great strategy for regulating appetite. And whether you're choosing paleo or keto or vegan, most of these plans out there focus on choosing more whole foods, right? Fruits, vegetables, nuts, um, plant-based fats, Lean meats, fish, obviously vegan doesn't focus on those two, but a lot of the conventional diets out there are towards eating a less processed diet. So what are the things we need to be concerned about? Often these fad diets, commercial diets, the latest diet trends, 
they are often very, very restrictive with, again, absolutes. Eat this, not that. Don't pick this. And anytime you start cutting out foods out of your diet, there comes the risk of deficiencies, either micronutrient deficiencies uh, or even macronutrient deficiencies. Uh, I had somebody the other day who was following a more vegan diet and just was not meeting their protein needs based off of their food selection. And they noticed they didn't feel well, right? Um, if you've ever done the Whole30 diet, right? A lot of people have experience with that. It was basically you follow a uh, elimination diet for 30 days, and then you're supposed to slowly start to bring those foods back into your diet. And we all think, oh, it's just 30 days, 30 days, that's simple enough. And then you start to think about, okay, well, what month do I want to do this? Because January, there's New Year's. February, there's Valentine's and Super Bowl. March or April, you might hit Easter, right? And then June, July, August, well, those are summer months. Like there never seems to be a good time or a good 30 days where there's not something to tempt you off track. I know for myself, I tried doing it with my sister-in-law one time uh, when it first came out or maybe a couple months after it came out because I think she tried it once on her own and then I did it. I think I made it to day 22 and then I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I was going out to eat with some girlfriends and I just wanted to enjoy myself and have a good time. And I was like, man, I, I couldn't even do it for 30 days. And the thing with the whole 30 is if you screw up, you got to start all over. So there's like this whole level of shaming going on, um, on top of the restriction and the elimination diet. So the problem is with most of these diets, it, again, it can increase disordered eating, right? When it gets to the point where you are so panicked or stressed out or can't go somewhere to eat because fear of eating a, a bad ingredient or um, one that's not allowed and it starts to impact your mental health, we have to examine, okay, what are the long-term success rates with this? Once again, always have to be looking at blood work. Anytime you do a diet that takes things out of your diet instead of putting them in, we have to be looking at your blood work to make sure that the inside of your body is okay with these changes. All right. So again, you can put whatever word into that sentence you want, but most research is showing that it has more to do with sustainability than it does with which diet you pick. All right. Number four, moving right along. Sugar is fattening. Is sugar fattening? Well, what does the science say? Good news. Sugar is not fattening. Fattening. Overeating calories is fattening. So when it comes to sugar, let's be honest. We all like sugar, right? Sugar's tasty. It's easy to overeat. It's in a lot of foods. You know, anything processed, man, sugar's jacked up, and that's why we like it. That's why we struggle around it. We... We struggle with portion sizes around it because it just tastes good and it ignites and excites and lights up all the pleasure centers in our brain with lots and lots of reward. And we're here for it, right? If you have a lot of sugar in your diet, I'll give you a recommendation. The first place to start when it comes to reducing the amount of sugar in your diet is start with beverages, and the reason why we want to start with beverages is because research shows us 
that we don't compensate for sugary beverages. So I should have brought the book with me when I was doing this podcast. I had it in my hand and then I let it into another room. But I I believe the research was they gave uh, a group of individuals a sugary beverages. So like think soda um, or lemonade or something like that. And then think another group, I think they gave them some jelly beans. And they wanted to see if you eat something full of sugar, do you compensate elsewhere later in the day in your diet? And interestingly, the people that had the jelly beans did compensate later with a lower um, calorie dinner or whatever the next meal was. But the people that had the sugary beverages didn't. It's almost as if they didn't count. And let's be honest, they jam a lot of sugar into drinks, (laughs) right? When I show my clients exactly how much added sugar is in some beverages, whether we're talking um, like like iced teas and lemonades and fruit punches and sodas, uh, or if we're talking about cocktails, the fun cocktails, uh, or if we're talking about Starbucks or Wawa smoothies. We were looking that up again this week and showing how much added sugar is in smalls. But let's be honest, smalls are not small anymore. Um, Smalls are really large, what large used to be 20 years ago, right? And so we don't compensate. We don't think of them as calories or a source of, of carbohydrates because they're in drink forms. And we think more of the food that we eat, not the drinks. Same thing with alcohol. We don't tend to compensate calorically when we have alcoholic beverages. In fact, alcohol sometimes makes us hungrier. Or we seek out carbohydrate-rich foods when we're drinking because we want it to soak up the alcohol so that we don't have as much of a hangover the next day. All right. So is the goal to get rid of all sugar in your diet? Because there's tons of diets out there that say you have to get rid of all of it. I personally don't agree with that. You will hear me say this over and over again if you come into the office. I will not ask you to do something I'm not willing to do myself. And I'm just not willing to get rid of sugar in my diet. I do try to keep it in moderation. Um, I definitely don't have a whole bunch of added sugar every day. We eat dessert every once in a while. Um, But I find that my clients that try to get rid of it completely end up just going on a binge in a matter of days. Whereas my clients that enjoy it in moderation and have it from time to time or small amounts on a daily basis, they tend to do a lot better and have more long-term success. So it really, again, it's up to you. When people ask me, well, how long does it take to get sugar out of your system? It's about a good two, three weeks. So if you're thinking, I'm going to go cold turkey and I'm not going to eat it anymore and I'm going to radically take it out of my diet forever and ever, you may want to get a hotel room for the first couple of weeks because you're going to be angry and agitated because your body's going to be like, what the heck? We're used to having a lot of sugar and now you just basically took it away and now I want it. So there's my public service announcement. You may need to um, get away for a little bit or send your family away for a little bit so that you can deal with, with um, your withdrawal, we'll call it. All right, so number five. Training fasted is better than training fed. 
So if you are going to work out, should you work out on an empty stomach or should you work out having some food in your system? So the line of thinking here is if you train fasted, then your body will tap into your fat stores and convert fat into energy so you can do your workout. But on the other side, some people argue, no, you should train fed. You should have something in your system because if you have food in your system, you will be able to go longer, harder, um, increase your intensity and duration and be able to um, finish strong versus hitting a wall and, and fatiguing early. But what does the science say? Actually, the research doesn't show significant differences between the two. So just pick what feels better to you. Right? It's a personal preference. Guys, is this not great information? This podcast, like you should be so excited. There is no rule that has to be followed all the time. You get to pick what feels good to you. This is why nutrition will always be a very individualized experience. You can't take these broad ideas and throw them across the board and say, everybody has to do this to be successful. No, you don't. You just get to do what feels good to you, what works for you. And it's okay if it doesn't work for your neighbor or your sister or your uh, coworker. It doesn't matter because if it works for you inside and out, that is all that matters. If you like having something in your system before you work out because you're less nauseous, you're less hungry during your workout, and, you know, you don't have any trouble working out because it doesn't affect you, like you don't get side stitches, and you can finish strong, then do that. But if it doesn't really matter, you don't notice a difference in gains, um, you actually prefer an empty stomach because putting food in your stomach before you work out makes you sick, do that. Do whatever works for you. It is a personal preference. Now, what do we have to consider? Do you guys see a theme here? <laughs> I want to make sure that you got, you're thinking strategically and critically through all this because it's not a, okay, well, then I'll just do this. Like, these are the considerations. How are you sleeping? Right? Your sleep. Do you, what time of day do you work out? Right? If you uh, want to work out first thing in the morning, and getting up in the morning is already difficult and having to wake up an hour earlier before your workout so you can eat something first and have it digest before you go to the gym if that's not going to work because you're you're only you're going to be sacrificing sleep to make that happen it's something to consider and obviously how do you feel during your workouts are you able to get through your workout the way you want to I've tried it both ways. Sometimes I don't notice a difference. It, for me, it depends on the time of day that I'm exercising, right? So obviously, if I'm working out later in the morning or in the afternoon, I'm going to have eaten probably several meals up until that point. But if I'm doing it, you know, as soon as I roll out of bed, I don't always eat something first, 
it depends on what I'm doing. If I know I'm going to be doing a really intense, heavy strength training workout, yeah, I'm probably going to eat something small. If I'm going for a run, probably not. Especially now that I'm not running as many miles as I used to. And let's be honest, I'm not running any miles right now. I'm walking. Um, I'm hoping to pick running back up in the summer. But for right now, I'm just doing more strength workouts and walking. That seems to be working okay for me. So pick what feels good to you. But use your workouts. Look at your schedule. How it affects your sleep how it impacts the rest of your day, and use that as a guideline to help you determine if you want to train fasted or fed. All right, last one. You must track your calories to be successful. All right, you ready? What does the science say? The science actually confirms this. People that track do better. They do. They do better in both the weight loss stage and in the maintenance stage. But here is the good news. You don't have to track 100% to see success. You can see results even as low as 75%, which this is great news because the number one thing that gets people off track with tracking, the number one reason they fall off the wagon is because of the time commitment Um, the tediousness, is that even a word, of trying to do it meticulously and get it all correct, it becomes a burden. And they're just like, I don't need this in my life. This is, it's fun and exciting like the first two days and then it gets old really, really quickly. So a question I get all the time is, do I have to use my fitness pal or lose it or some type of um, tracking device on my phone? And the answer is no. You can use pen and paper. I like to pre-journal my day because then I don't have to journal anything for the rest of the day. I just do it in the morning and I don't have to think about it. At least the what the rest of the day. I just get to listen to my body signals. When it's hungry, I'll eat what I planned. And when I'm full, I I stop. And I'm not perfect at that, but that's the goal. I don't want to have to come up with the creativity piece, the what, and have to make it. And have to pay attention to all my cues. So I try to take some of those variables out of the equation so I can just focus on the mindfulness piece when I'm eating. All right. But you don't need to use a MyFitnessPal and meticulously write down everything you eat down to the calorie. That's where people get messed up. Right. Listen, here's some truth for you. People lost weight 30, 40 years ago without my fitness pal. They used to do it with a journal and a pen. Let's remember, what are the reasons why we journal? All right, we journal for awareness and ownership. One research trial estimated that people underestimate their intake by 47%. 47%, that's a lot right? I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I wrote everything out and it says I'm fine. But if you are underestimating by 47%, that could be why you're stalling out. So the reasons why you underestimate, you're eyeballing wrong. You think it's a cup, it's really a cup and a half. You forget. You know, people, well, some people forget intentionally. They just 
eliminate that piece of information when they're sharing with me what they had to eat the other day. Uh, or they just forgot. Oh, that's right. I forgot I had, I had an apple and peanut butter as a snack. They just think more so about the meals and not about the snack. Or, oh, yeah, I forgot I was picking at um, some celery and peanut butter while I was making dinner or some tortilla chips and salsa, right? They just, they forget, right? Some reasons why they may underestimate is they're using the incorrect food items in MyFitnessPal. So one time I saw a person put coffee in their MyFitnessPal and it, they wanted black coffee, but it showed up as 200 calories. And I was like, whoa, 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 coffee's not 200 calories. It's zero unless you're putting stuff in it. And they're like, oh, I just picked coffee. I mean, if you don't know what nutrients and how many calories are in foods and you just pick one that's available, of course you're going to make an honest mistake and just pick something because you think that they're all correct. If you are using a MyFitnessPal, they do offer those green checks. Um, so I always say if you're going to pick one, try to look for a green check because it's probably more accurate than one without a green check. Right? So people underestimate for a whole bunch of reasons, some deliberate, but some not. And so again, journaling's for awareness. Like, ah, oh, I didn't realize I snack four times in between lunch and dinner. Ah, oh, I didn't realize that when I go to Red Robin, the burger is 2,100 calories. I didn't realize that I eat the majority of my calories after dinner. It's for awareness of your habits. The other part of journaling is for ownership, accountability. A lot of times, as soon as it's not good, we want to hide. We don't want to write down the bad stuff. We only want to write down the good stuff. But typically, people aren't coming to me for help with the good stuff. They're coming to me for help with where their challenges are. And if I don't know where the challenges are because you won't write them down, it's really hard for me to help you to be successful. All right. So bottom line, journaling in the beginning can be really, really helpful. But after that, you don't have to be so regimented and at 100%. Even doing it a few times a week, say four times a week, can be helpful for maintenance. But the consideration, as always, is we need to check the benefit-risk ratio. If journaling is psychologically damaging, meaning it's causing a lot of anxiety, like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't log my foods in yet today, and you're getting really nervous, or you're getting compulsive, obsessive-compulsive about it, um, if you're not going out to eat with friends uh, or going over to other people's houses to eat because you're not quite sure how you're going to log the food and that's causing anxiety. If you're not eating a variety of foods in your diet because you're just going with what's safe and known, um, those are some red flags. Uh, then we need to examine if journaling is the right course of action for you. Okay, so as always, if you don't have mental health, you don't have health, regardless of what the scale says. Tracking calories can be a way to be successful. We just have to use it as data and not let it cross the line to where it's impacting your mental health. 
All right. So that's it. Those are your six common things that I see in my office. Questions that I get, you know, does this make a difference? Do I really need to follow this? And what the research says. So hopefully you guys found this, um, this podcast really helpful. And again, if you are looking for help to try to figure out what is the right course of action for you, that's where working with a dietitian can be extremely helpful. Right? You guys are sometimes bombarded with a lot of information. Should I be doing this? Is this right for me? Is this the magic bullet? Uh, it's good for you to speak to a professional to be able to weed out some of that noise to what is actually beneficial to you. Um, and again, that might not be what's beneficial to the people around you. So again, individualized experience. And we just are here to help guide you in that experience to get you the results you're looking for. All right, let's get to your recipe. So today is a chocolate hummus. All right, I know some people are not fans of hummus, but if we make a dessert hummus, maybe we can slowly ease our way into regular hummus or not. Maybe we just stick with chocolate hummus and land there and that is okay too. All right, for this recipe, you're gonna need one can of chickpeas drained and rinsed, two tablespoons of oil, a third a cup of maple syrup, two tablespoons of peanut butter or nut butter. Uh, alternatively, you can even use tahini here. All right, you're gonna take those four ingredients and you're gonna throw them in either a food processor or a blender, and you're going to blend them for about one to two minutes, so until they're, they're very well incorporated. Next, you're gonna add one teaspoon of vanilla, a quarter cup of cocoa powder, and a teaspoon of salt. And you're gonna blend that again, and then throw it in a bowl, because it is ready to serve. Uh, you can serve it with fruit, so maybe banana slices or strawberries, uh, maybe some whole grain pretzels or graham crackers. Uh, but this is a nice snack that gives you a little bit of extra protein and fiber, and um, but it also allows for you to have that chocolate fix. All right, guys. Thank you so much for showing up today. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Nourish Eat Repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate, review, and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricshealth.com. You can also find us on socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Bodymetrics Health. The book Nourish Eat Repeat is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrienne Delgado, and I'll see you next week.